Today's guest on the show, Bill Barian, has had an extraordinary professional journey. He earned an MBA at Harvard, he worked at GE, and then in private equity. Ten years ago, he purchased Pindell Global Precision, a successful two-generation precision machining company that he has modernized and grown over the last decade. Oh, I forgot to mention, he was also a Navy SEAL officer for nine years. This is Swarfcast, the show that helps professionals in precision machining excel in their careers. I'm your host, Noah Graff. Today's podcast is brought to you by Graf Pinkert. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graf Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graffpinkert.com. That's www.graffpinkert.com. I am very honored to be with Bill Barian, owner and CEO of Pindell Global Precision in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Thank you for being here, Bill. Welcome to the show. Noah, great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I am really excited to talk to Bill. He has a very interesting background. You know, a lot of people in precision machining have, you know, diverse stories, how they got in. But Bill's is a bit unique, I think. So before we launch into your story, I just want to get a little context. Give me the three-minute summary of Pindell, just so people know, you know what we're talking about. Great. Uh, so three-minute summary of Pindell. Uh, company founded 1947, so exactly 75 years ago. Uh, downtown Milwaukee, all multi-spindle screw machines, Acme's. Uh, and it was actually in the basement of a building on, you know, First and Walnut. Came out to the suburbs, New Berlin, in the 60s. In the 90s, got into CNC machining, more as secondary operations for parts blanked off off the uh, multi-spindle. And I acquired in 2012. And so for the last 10 years, have been leading and uh, growing the company. So our uh, traditionally a very industrial client base, customer base orientation. But a few years back, we incubated another company, Liberty Precision, uh, which is some, you know, a portion of our existing, mainly the CNC equipment to go after defense, aerospace and medical markets. Very good. We're going to get into detail on that stuff in a bit. So now... Uh, I want to get your background. You're interesting because you both have um, a formal business school background and a military background. So let's just take it from way back to when you were in school the first time. What You went to Princeton, correct? I did. Yep. 
Okay, so what were you interested in when you attended Princeton at first? So studied uh, political science, politics, uh, economics, so sort of a, a liberal arts path, but did most of my internships during college on Wall Street. You know, but I guess if there's maybe a, outside of the classroom, a theme, it was around the leadership side of life. I liked, uh, I played four years of Division One water polo and was captain of the team senior year. Wow. Uh, yeah, loved it. Isn't it interesting how Princeton is a Division One school? Like, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, it, it's sort of really, the strength varies by the sport. Are all the Ivy Leagues Division One? I? I believe they are. I believe they are, you know, smaller as they are. No, not when I was there, but a few years later, a couple of years later, water polo went to the uh, final four of the NCAAs. There were a lot bigger sports, you know, bad, you know basketball, but uh, lacrosse, things like that. Okay. So water polo. And then after you graduate, you became a Navy SEAL. And I would think that water polo actually might, did your, did your, your water polo skills help? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh we always say what the what the, what the ref can't see, the ref can't call. So a little bit if you're not cheating, you're not trying. Uh you know, very, very physical game. Yeah, you it's know. physical. You're like fighting underwater and treading water. Yep, swimming with contact. And uh yeah, really, really cohesive group. The quality of an East Coast water polo team is entirely dependent on how many West Coast recruits you get. And I was from New York. So I wasn't uh, I wasn't the best player, but you know I. You what know, does it have to do with West Coast recruiting? Because out in the West Coast, they play water polo in high school. So you know it's and most of the you know it's a much more active elementary school and high school. So you had never played water polo before you no, got to college. I didn't. No. Interesting. It kind of reminds me of I was at University of Wisconsin, and when I got there, they tried to recruit me for crew. Like, uh, nice. Yes. You get on campus and they're like, you're tall. How about you go out for crew? No, <laughs> I was, my 18 uh, year old son is uh, talking to the coaches there about, uh, you know, possible. He was, he was actually trying to. In Madison. In Madison. Yeah. He was uh, hoping to enlist after high school and, and go into the SEALs, enlist in the Navy. And just the last, last couple months decided to put a couple of applications in and all that conditioning and prep uh, put him in a great place to, on the erg so he's been uh he's been pursuing that and doing really well so we'll see see how it rolls cool. pans out okay so you you know you go to a prestigious university princeton you're poli sci did you know anybody else that was interested in going into military when you were there you know they have an rtc program um, sure. so army and air force they don't have navy um but it was actually a buddy classmate of mine who told me about this path of officer candidate school in the seals and just at that point said yeah i'm 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 doing that and why the seals i mean there's a gazillion other things in the military too why do people choose the seals is it does it have the most prestige is it considered the hardest or you know i I like that the mission profile you know the direct action it's a special reconnaissance so i like i like that the small team dynamic it had you know when I was applying, there were only a handful of books. Uh, it was really tough to find magazine articles. So, so what, what are we talking? What what time frame? Uh, 89, 89, 90. 89, 90. Uh, yep. Okay. So I was actually getting my Navy physical the morning that we invaded 
uh, Panama. So yeah, yeah, just cause it was weird, uh, you know, being in the in the waiting chair to uh, you know go get an EKG and seeing that coming across the TV. So it you know it brought home here I was applying for that community and sadly uh, four seals were killed on Patia, um, but you know it did it, it just you know brought home the seriousness of it. So but I, I loved you know I was in nine years, uh, commanded seal, three seal platoons helped lead a army special forces ODA down to Columbia for three months. And then I was an aide at the very end, an aide to a, uh, one of the commanding generals within the community. But I love that, you know, small unit dynamic, you know, very capable individuals acting together as a team. So you were an officer in the SEALs. Okay. But to be an officer, you know, I'm just going by like, you know, what I see in the movies and stuff. So to be an officer, you have to go through the same yep. stuff as anybody. It's just as hard to be an officer in the SEALs. Is it harder to be to get in as an officer? It might be harder to get the slot to go. I had to wait about 18 months in order to get the slot to go to officer candidate school and then go in the SEALs. But I would say, you know, once you're in, once you're in the training, you now everyone's going through the same crucible. So, so what would happen if you went through? So you went to officer training and then then you could just as easily wash out after officer training? Sure. Yep. I mean, the the attrition rate is high on on both officer enlisted sides. How many people make it? It has about an 80% attrition rate. So our class started with 121 and graduated 21. Wow. Yeah. But friendships for life. And I take a lot of pride in at graduation. There's sort of two awards given. One is the honor, the honor man for the top performing buds candidate and the other is the uh the fire in the gut award that's voted on by the class and uh, i was the fire in the gut winner or uh you know honoree uh so that was that was, that was nice you know just reflecting sort of a lot of motivation and wow resilience so i was honored by my class for that interesting interesting and you know it's, it's just really interesting to me i've read various Books. I read a book by David Goggins, and he talks about being in the the seals and just the craziness of it. How difficult it is to like. What was the most difficult part of getting in? Was it? I remember in that book. I think he said it was the knots tying, like underwater or something. Yeah, and that uh, you do the, the underwater knot tying after Hell Week, so your uh, your lungs and your uh, endurance are just destroyed, and there you are at the bottom of the pool. You know, ten or twelve feet. Uh, holding your breath, tying five knots. I thought pool comp was pretty challenging. So you're you put on a your diving rig, you're down at the bottom of the pool, and instructors are coming down, ripping gear off you, tying up your hoses, which are the the World War II type that you know when you tie them, it really does cut the air off. Um, and you're just solving problems, you know, and hopefully you know managing your stress and all that. Yeah, but you know everyone has their they're, they're challenges. You know, you lose a lot of people during hell week, but you also lose people during dive physics. And does anybody, were there any fatalities? Or? Not in my class. No. How often um, does that happen? You know, once every two or three years, you know, if anything, the military in general, and especially the SEALs are very good about learning lessons. And when something goes wrong, collectively picking it apart, understanding what went wrong, and then 
fixing, you know, fixing your process, fixing whatever it is so it doesn't happen again. You know, they we always had a saying, the most valuable lessons were learned in blood, sadly. So yeah, I mean, it's 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 really, I think, pretty infrequent. I don't know all the statistics, but I'll say I don't think there have been two fatalities for the same reason. What's one of the biggest misconceptions about the SEALs and the military in general, the U.S. military? You know, great, great question. I mean, I think what is maybe under, un, not as well known is, you know, by the sort of the civilian world is just how smart and, yeah. you know, adaptable and problem-solving oriented, you know, all areas of the military are, you know, and it's, you know, really, really sort of a, I was, I was just, you know, so, so impressed by the folks that I served with, you know, in the SEALs and, and in the broader, broader. Do you think that's because we always hear about the blunders? It's kind of like you, you only, those are, that's really all that comes in the news rather than, you know, everything that goes right. No, I think, you know, it's interesting growing up late seventies, early eighties, you know, someone said like, Oh, you know, military intelligence is an oxymoron. Yeah. Uh, but God, that, I mean, that, I don't know that it was speaking to Korea or Vietnam or what, but you know, it, it, it certainly was the military I experienced, um, you know, where the data, you know, acquired, analyzed intelligence understood and the thoughtfulness that goes into acting on that intelligence was, you know, was was profound. So, uh, yeah. So I would say that would be a uh, so maybe um, you, know, uh, you know a misconception or just at least an unknown, yeah, uh, unappreciated. Hey, listeners! I first just want to say thank you for tuning in. I know you could be spending your time doing a whole bunch of other things right now. I'm trying hard to build our audience for this podcast, and as you might imagine, it's not easy. Rather than just ask you to rate and review the show, which I would love if you did, I want to try something different. I would be eternally grateful if you could stop this episode for a moment and think of one person who would enjoy the show, and then send them a text message to recommend it. Okay, I will now assume you've taken care of that. Back to the show. Right, well, to me, it seems like, I don't know, you know, war is hell and messy, and we've been in some, you know, 18-year, 20-year wars, and things often haven't gone the way, you know, the people in charge said they would or thought they would. And so I think it's easy to second-guess, you know, overall strategy, well, I mean, there's the there's you know stuff at the strategic level, but also you know at the tactical level, on the ground, you know the reality is the enemy gets a vote. They get a say in how this problem is going to be solved, and they're not always going to vote the way you think they vote. Sure. Uh, yeah. It's going to make it a very dynamic situation. Absolutely. Um, just a few other things about this. I mean, we're so were you in Kosovo? Was that one of your missions? Uh, Bosnia. 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 I get it all confused. Uh, Kosovo. I was in Kosovo, but not in a sort of a tactical capacity. But in in, in Bosnia, I uh, led my platoon there. So, what did you guys do? What did that mean, leading your platoon? You. Yeah, I mean, we you know we were a, a quick reaction force for uh, things that might go on there. 
Uh, we were also part of some multinational efforts around identifying and locating persons indicted for war crimes. They're, the acronym is PIFWICS. So it was a lot of the NATO forces that were actively trying to find uh, and capture those folks. So it was, uh, you know, it was dramatic seeing the ethnic destruction there, you know, right at that that point in the after the fighting and you know still during some incidents um yeah and, so, and then i also spent uh, about four years going down to uh south america with uh with platoons so spent you know a lot of time in colombia was that what for the war on drugs is that yeah all related to that you know counter narcotics and you know working with and training their forces and things like that interesting you know when we talked before and I think this is going to sort of segue into the business. You you mentioned um, the middle management of our platoons, the NCO, non the, N- the NCO. Yep. So explain what the NCO is and how that really fits into our military versus other militaries, and and then we'll segue into into the business aspects of it oh great no so you know the 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 nco in my so it stands for non-commissioned officer so you have lower enlisted uh you know there's enlisted has an e acronym or a e prefix before it so you know sort of e e through six e5 to e9 is your 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 ncos your non-commissioned officers so they aren't commissioned officers, but they have very significant leadership responsibilities within whatever the fighting unit is, you know, SEAL platoon, you know, Army company, Army battalion, you know, Marine Corps company, et cetera. And then you have the commissioned officers that... That's you. That's that what was, you were. That, that was me. That, that, that's right. So I was, a, you know, assistant platoon commander and then a platoon commander. But it's the, uh, it's the NCO Corps and their leadership and their professionalism that I think is without a doubt the biggest differentiator uh and accelerant in in our military and it's you know and its differentiation from other militaries uh you know you look at the the Russians right now you know they're losing generals left and right and you know I think I think a big part of their problem is they have such a poor and poorly trained NCO Corps Actually, lead, no. That would is supposed to be leading the troops on the ground. Do they even uh, have an NCO corps? I don't know. I, I I don't know the details of their. Yeah, so, nobody knows what's going on. <laughs> yeah, their order of battle. But I think what you're finding is what should be that layer of tactical leadership isn't there, and so these you know generals are going to the front to direct troops at a much lower level. It's not it's not what they do well, and and they're getting shot and killed at a much higher rate. And it, it really is that professionalism. And so would that be like the equivalent of like a three-star general here going into combat? Yeah, but, you know, but, but uh, you know, I think sort of going, going to the front lines to actually direct troops and tanks and things like that, where normally there are other levels of the profession that would be executing the commander's intent. But interesting, that's missing on the Russians right now. You know, they're big on big weapon systems, but they're not they don't seem to be any longer uh, big on the people development side. Right. And I was reading about the Ukrainian army and the guy who's the head there studied the U.S. military very closely. 
And I think this was one of the things that he embraced. Have you, are you familiar with that? Uh, not, not the specific details, but I would say based on what I read that, uh, you know, it, it, it seemed, it seems pretty accurate that, you know, you want to be modeling off of the, off of the U S military and how it both trains and expects more from, you know, more, more, more of its troops. And you think more, it expects more than more of its troops than anywhere else in the world. Or you can't you can't really opine on anywhere else in the world, but a lot yeah, of places. No, but, but, you know, but I think our our NCO development stands out. I think you want to you'd like to go in this direction, but just to uh, I've got this thesis around advanced manufacturing and you know the military's development of its NCO core that up until uh, the early seventies when we went up until we went to a all volunteer professional army. I believe that, you know, the advanced manufacturing field was largely in line with, uh, you know, our NCO development uh, back then, that it was a lot was very based on the unit or the company someone was working for. Uh, there weren't necessarily rigorous standards for progression. So wait, you're saying back in old times, there was less NCOs? Uh, less focus on NCO development and that professional and when we shifted to a so it was more top down versus say in business now with correct that is interesting so it's a, there's a parallel between how business has shifted and maybe how the military has shifted yeah and and when uh, did that shift take place when it became an all volunteer or after we had been through so many terrible experiences and that was one of the things they learned or uh, yeah, I mean, when it went, when it shifted to you know less on the left a draft less of a drafted military and more of a uh, you know all volunteer professionally developed military, you know, we added two more enlisted pay grades E eight E nine, you know, implemented very structured uh, and rigorous you know examinations and boards and reviews for advancement to become an NCO and then advancement within. We developed senior enlisted academies to further bolster that professionalism of the NCO Corps. But it's interesting up until then, until you know Vietnam, so manufacturing was on that on that same path. You know, but then in the 70s and 80s and 90s, you started to get, you know, you didn't get that upward tick in professional development of advanced manufacturing. You were you saw a lot of manufacturing shift overseas or you know shift to other countries. Uh, you started to see it getting pulled out of high schools, you know the industrial arts and things like that. You didn't see it emphasized as much. And pendulum is swinging back. And I think one of the opportunities that is to, for you know the advanced manufacturing world is to take some of those pages out of the military playbook on how it developed its NCOs and apply them to you know our advanced manufacturing workforce uh and creating you know professional path professional development and more rigorous standards for gaining responsibility and exposure you know but in, in essence trying to really create the profession of advanced manufacturing you know where you know profession shouldn't be just lawyers doctors and accountants it should be the teams that you know you're familiar with that we you know that I that we're helping grow here you know it should be that profession should be rewarding it should be enduring and frankly it should be transferable you know so that much like an accountant that moves from Milwaukee to Cincinnati 
their professional credential doesn't disappear. You know, their value doesn't go away. It, it should be the same thing for a machinist. They move or they go to another company. What they know shouldn't be specific to Pindell. It should be meeting an industry standard. And so, and I think that's a little bit of the opportunity that the, the you know, that the military offers in that example of how you develop that very professional NCO core. Let's, let, let's, let's apply it to, you know, our industry. They're very interesting. Very interesting. Uh, okay. So you did your time, you were in the military for nine years, nine years. Yep. How long are people normally in the seals for it? That sounds like a long time. I mean, the initial commitment is uh, four years. You know, typically they, the times you'd see people getting out are four years, then nine, 10 years. Did you think uh, you were going to, maybe it was going to be your, your career, your calling? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I loved it. I mean, I, uh, so why did you leave? Well, you know, in, in 99, you know, in relative terms, you know, a fairly peaceful stretch of years. So you've never been in a firefight? Correct. Correct. So uh interesting. Yeah, but that's you know, you're yeah, I mean it's what it's what you were dealt. I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean it's not your fault. No, and you uh you know, there's an old adage that you don't train special operations forces, you know, on a on a dime. And so the reality But was, I mean, did you know any people that I mean it's different if you haven't been in a spot where somebody right next to you was shot. Yeah, I mean it's uh you you are training your forces, your your platoons and stuff as if it can happen any day. And that's that's the mindset you need to have. Uh you know, so there's an old saying sort of earn your trident every day. And you know, we're as a community, we're sort of back in that, you know, without active combat, Afghanistan, Iraq. Sort of, not that it, not that there isn't stuff going on in the world, you know, but yeah. on a sort of a larger scale. And the trick in this sort of interwar period is to, you know, maintain the edge, you know, the forces, you know, keep them trained, so you don't end up with that, uh, you know, what we saw between sort of World War One, World War Two. Um, Are we? Is our military depleted right now? I don't have enough sort of information to know. I don't. I don't think so. Uh, I, I'm not in the best position to know. Yeah, I don't know. All I hear is sound bites here and there. You yeah. know, like, um, all right, this is fascinating, and ho- hopefully, we'll we'll touch on it some more. Uh, but now it's going to get just as interesting. So, okay, nine years. You decided you probably wanted some movement in your life. I'm guessing that was kind of the case. We had a uh, you know the dot com boom. It. Uh, 1999, it looked like the world was changing and all the action, you know, seemed like it was. Little did you know, <laughs> little right, did you know right. you were getting out at the right time or the wrong right, time. Right. Yeah, it's funny. I was uh, I was in business school and I was interviewing for actually a job at Enron. And the next day, <laughs> the next day they, they declared bankruptcy. Uh, the next day? Next day, it was crazy. Yeah. You have you have interesting timing. Yeah, well, I, you know, I'm glad they didn't. I didn't uh, accept an offer and forego others, and then they declare. So I, I would say the timing was pretty good. On the next episode of Swarfcast, I have found a tremendous amount of parallels between advanced manufacturing and the special operations community. 
because at the heart of them, you know, we already talked about the role of sort of that floor leadership uh, NCO core, but at the heart, you know, both communities are composed of small, highly cohesive, highly trained teams enabled by advanced technology, you know, trying to do outsized things, trying to punch above their weight. From today's machining world, this is Swarfcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the show on your favorite app and give us a five-star rating and a review. And don't forget to tell your friends about it. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and todaysmachiningworld.com to join our mailing list, read episode summaries, and watch extended interview videos. I'm Noah Graff. My occasional co-host is Lloyd Graff. Our managing editor is Ridgely Dunn. Our audio engineer is Patricio Garcia. For information on advertising or to submit an idea for a future podcast, follow the contact information at todaysmachiningworld.com.